Last time on The Salty Siren, we talked about the beginnings of Ramage's Rampage and the perfect storm of events that led to one of the most famous naval events of World War II. We talked about the origins of the USS Parch, as well as her commander, Ramage, and all of the various modifications that had been made to the Balao class of submarines. We touched briefly on the Mark IV and Mark XIV torpedoes, as well as all of the fixes that took place just in time for the Parch's deployment into the Pacific. Where we last left off, the Parch was heading towards a detected convoy of merchant vessels, the events that would later become known as Ramage's Rampage. O'er the wild windy sea, I can hear her calling to me. So let's heave away, haul away, and fill our eyes with the shore. Calls to friends, ale and light, and a tale to brighten the night. So heave away, haul away, and Siren song. All right, so Hammerhead came up on this large convoy around midnight uh, between July 28th and 29th, and uh, the U.S. Navy designated it Convoy MI-11. From the sort of initial data that Hammerhead was able to send back, they got that there were 17 merchant vessels, uh, six escort vessels of significant size, primarily destroyers, as well as uh, a decent contingent of much smaller gunboats and like smaller sort of military craft. We'll send but, boats with guns. Gunboats. Gunboats. Yeah, it's basically, it was a, a decent sized convoy, but the biggest thing that, and I, I wasn't able to find if Hammerhead noticed this initially or if they just discovered it through the events that followed, but uh, there were sort of four main ships on it that were identified as primary targets. So there was the Fuso Maru and the Yoshino Maru, uh, both of which were troop transports and were loaded with 5,000 troops each, uh, along with the Ogura Maru and the Koe Maru, which were huge fuel tankers that were carrying vital supplies to the Japanese front lines. Now, Due to the sort of like wolf pack formation, Hammerhead was moving in from the west, and due to the kind of rough seas conditions at the time, and just general interference, they sent the wrong coordinates for where the uh, for where this convoy was. And just to recap, the the wolf pack kind of formation 
was just the submarines are kind of in the same general area and then they just start blasting right they okay. they move in a pretty loose formation uh to hopefully kind of like catch any potential ones once something pops up on their radar they report it decide if it's worth going after and then the wolf pack closes in okay and one of the benefits of that is that as like as happened here so hammerhead relays the wrong coordinates but realizes that they've done it and corrects it a little bit later but uh Hammerhead makes an attack run and claims one vessel sunk. No specifics, really, on which one they hit, but it wasn't one of the four main targets. So Steelhead, uh, being further away and on the eastern side, uh, comes in from the other direction. And this was kind of the, the power of the wolf pack is like a merchant convoy would get hit by a submarine and they'd freak out and start hunting for that one submarine and then would get hit from a completely different direction that they weren't prepared for at all by another submarine. And so usually there was sort of like an initial ambush and then subsequent ambushes that made it really hard to respond to. But a few hours later, Steelhead came in from the east and uh, claimed a few hits, but no sinkage on both of the fuel carriers, uh, as well as successfully sinking two lesser vessels. I guess I could have worded that better. But (laughs) they hit both the fuel carriers, but didn't sink them, and then they sunk two smaller merchant vessels. Now... Or Steelhead slips beneath the waves and gets out of dodge. But uh, in the wake of Steelhead's attack, which was significantly more destructive than Hammerhead's, the escort vessels all sort of fan out in like a net trying to uh, trying to find Steelhead and Hammerhead. And Parch comes sailing up and detects the like spreading net of escort ships and so pulls into what i'd call a 360 degree turn where they basically turn off and out and around and basically form a circle kind of coming back hoping to dodge this net of escort vessels which they successfully do. They slip right in between them, and they're thinking, great, we're going to be like right in the perfect area to start an attack. But unbeknownst to them, and undetected because they had pulled such a wide turn to avoid the destroyer net, they hadn't detected that the merchant convoy had begun taking evasive maneuvers and altering their path, and that they had turned directly into the path of USS Parsh. Okay. So, with this, and all of this partially happening because of the harsh surface conditions and the vibrating periscopes of the Balao class <laughs> of submarine, 
they surface and Ramage immediately notices that they are basically just in the center of the entire convoy. Oh and no. When later interviewed about his initial thoughts upon realizing what was happening, Ramage simply said, I got mad. And mad he did indeed get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Ramage commanded USS Parch to surface and to ready all surface weapons as well as torpedo tubes. In another miraculous moment, the Parch surfaced less than 500 yards from the bow of one of the merchant vessels, which they were headed into a straight-on collision course. Realizing that they were potentially going to be rammed, they slammed the rudder full rightward and were so close to each other that the surface gun crews of both vessels screamed insults at each other. <laughs> but they didn't so, shoot at each other? I mean, it was one of those things where, like, I'm sure they were shooting at each other, but I just loved the anecdote that they were so close that they could, like, hear yeah. <laughs> and understand each other, like, calling each other motherfuckers. <laughs> like, it's just crazy uh some of the sailors were saying like oh we came within 10 yards of that merchant ship and it's like knowing sailors yeah. and their tendency to exaggerate i i don't really buy that but still they cut it pretty close sure and so coming about pulling another sort of 270 degree turn uh uss parsh commences her first attack run as we mentioned previously i believe uh the balao class had six four torpedo tubes or forward facing and four aft or rear facing which was kind of cool because it meant that it could kind of fire from both directions and even like at angles from forward and backwards also that's just a lot more torpedoes than i expected there to be yeah i mean the balao class was the biggest submarine of the second world war like it was it was definitely a big boy don't know but... what you heard but i'm the biggest sub <laughs> But uh, pulling 270 degrees and now with her nose facing the uh, port side of the merchant vessel that they dodged, they fired two of the forward torpedo tubes, officially beginning the attack at 3.56 in the morning. So another thing to note, it is like still pitch black. So the merchant vessel took evasive action as soon as they saw the torps in the water, steering hard to port and successfully dodging them. But in yet another part of this perfect storm of events, the merchant vessel had turned and completely blocked a destroyer that was heading straight for the USS Parsh. Okay. Which forced the destroyer to have to pull off 
and basically do a full 360 degree turn before it could begin pursuing the submarine again. So, this bought Ramage and the USS Parch very, very valuable time, and they would use it well. So, darting in between the turning vessel and the following ship in the column, the USS Parch was now officially in between the two lines of the convoy, and enemy vessels had sort of formed this corridor, basically down either side and at 402 the parch fired one of her rear torpedoes at the original vessel uh, with a subsequent explosion and hit claimed shortly after now again it's like completely pitch black and so the merchant ships and any sort of escort gunboats are throwing up flares and machine gun fire is just like raking across the water. Merchant vessel defensive turrets and larger guns. Like basically muzzle flash and flares were the only thing that either side had to see by. So the merchant ships were really just sending up so many flares, but with how black the sea was, tons of shots went wide and hit friendly vessels, or, in the confusion, they thought that friendly vessels were the submarine and purposefully targeted it. So it was just pure, pure chaos. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, I but, mean, I, I can't imagine how... I can imagine how hard I would shit my pants if it was the middle of the night um, and someone told me there was a sub in the water. You know, just every man for himself or every ship for himself, I guess. Yeah, it, it, it definitely... I mean, especially, like, at least in Napoleonic sailing times, there was generally... A sort of feeling among the navy back then that merchants were incredibly incompetent sailors at least compared to military sailors now whether that's true or not i really couldn't tell you but i imagine that a significant amount of the chaos was happening just because like the merchants really weren't trained super well <laughs> on like the things you would be trained on with like a military vessel like correctly identifying like friendly from enemy vessels especially because they would expect like a sub attack to come from the outside so it's like yeah just shoot where the military vessels are shooting but because parsh had gotten into the convoy there were no the military vessels could not get in like yeah. it was basically just I would say bull in a china shop, but that one episode of Mythbusters proved that they <laughs> they wouldn't actually <laughs> fuck it up that bad. <laughs> but um, it yeah, it was just pure chaos. So after sort of getting through firing that rear torpedo and hitting the original vessel, or at least thinking that they hit the original vessel, uh. 
Ramage misidentified two of the central convoy ships as aircraft carriers due to their long, flat profiles on the water and immediately said, we've got to prioritize those. And so they set in to attack. But in another stroke of luck, Ramage had kind of accidentally found the two oil tankers. Yeah. <laughs> arguably the two most important targets in the entire convoy. So at 4.07 a.m., they launched the remaining four forward torpedoes at the Koei Maru. Four resounding explosions, and the torpedoes just tore the ship apart. Like, literally, she was sunk before the battle even ended. So... Oh, my. Like, they really did a number on it. But that earned the USS Parsh her first bit of tonnage for the event. But now completely out of forward torpedoes, the USS Parsh pulled off and brought the remaining three rear tubes to bear on the Agura Maru, the other oil or the the other oil tanker. The remaining three got fired off in pretty rapid succession with two of the shots hitting in the very front of the ship and the third one missing. But because they hit the front, it basically just made it a sitting duck. Because one of the things with torpedoes is that when they successfully rupture the hull, it creates a massive amount of drag on the ship under the mm -hmm. water. So, like, oftentimes, if it was, like, a military vessel, or even if they were just hit in a different spot, if you were hit on one side, you would have to purposefully flood the other side of the ship just to balance it out and even then the rudder would have to be basically angled to compensate for the increased drag on just one side of the ship but unfortunately for the Agura Maru these hit in the front so that meant that if it wanted to move forward at all <laughs> it was just forcing water into its lower components and uh, she began to list pretty heavily towards the front of the vessel and was reduced to a speed of two knots oh man so Is, isn't that the speed of a a submerged sub with like you, you're breaking down the speeds Right. I believe that was, like, the sustaining speed of... That was if the Balao class wanted to last 48 hours underwater without coming up for air. They had to go at two knots. Okay. So they're, like, barely moving, basically. Right. <laughs> but, um... Knowing that there was more to be done... Uh, Ramage immediately commanded the torpedo crews to rearm and confirmed that they would not be submerging to do this, which was standard procedure. 
you pretty much fire all your torpedoes, you pull off and rearm if necessary because it takes a long time. Yeah, it's it's a big old thing you got to put in the tube. But he effectively said, we don't have time to do that, just load the tubes. And so <laughs> uh, they slowed a bit and pulled kind of to the center between the two rows of vessels. And the USS Parsha's deck guns did their best, just roaring, trying to buy time for the torpedo crews below. Two torpedoes slammed home into their tubes at 4.16 a.m. and were immediately fired at the Dakar Maru, another merchant vessel that happened to cross in front of the sub as the torpedoes were loaded. Both torpedoes found their mark and the Dakar Maru exploded, uh, seemingly having hit some sort of uh, fuel reserve or something and the power immediately failed. So all the lights went off, the engine shut down, and it began sinking beneath the waves. Oh, God. <laughs> that was the second uh, the second vessel credited to the Parsh. Then, wheeling around again to bring the forward tubes to bear on the damaged Aguru Maru, uh, Parsh was once again saved... <laughs> just by complete chance uh, the Agura had an actually like decently sized cannon I couldn't find exact specifications on it because as you'll soon see it's, it's currently beneath the waves but uh, said cannon was now lifted so high into the air because of her forward uh forward compartments flooding that it couldn't aim down far enough to actually hit USS Parsh as it approached. It didn't have enough gun depression to <laughs> actually aim at them. So, wanting to make sure that they sunk what uh, they still believe to be an aircraft carrier, they fired three torpedoes again as soon as they were loaded at 4.21, all three finding their mark and causing the vessel to quickly sink. So, at this point, the Parsh pretty much weaves past the now sinking wreckage of the Agura and is kind of outside of the convoy corridor. Unfortunately, they're again in the position where they just have to reload. Like, that's what they're stuck doing. But, uh, because just by the nature of, like, kind of how ships work, uh, they had to slip out through there. They couldn't turn around quick enough to stay in the column. They immediately started getting lit the fuck up by escort ships. Yeah. <laughs> so, Ramage actually ordered the bridge cleared of everything but the most essential personnel because they were just constantly getting hit with varying munitions from gunboats. Destroyers were firing shots at them. Like, pretty much everything. 
And despite this, despite constantly hearing shells, like, ricochet off the deck and, like, 50 cal rounds peppering the outside of the ship, the torpedo rooms were just keeping on at a fever pitch, finally allowing two torpedoes to be loaded again into the forward tubes. Now, at this point... The parch pulls slightly off and begins to aim at the Yoshino Maru, one of the troop transports. And you can't really blame the guy at this point, but Ramage kind of tunnel visioned. He was so set on making sure that these torpedoes hit their mark that he took quite a while to realize that the crew that was still around on the deck and still sort of observing were yelling about an incoming ship. They started getting more panicked and were yelling warnings of an incoming ram. And the Kazan Maru, a converted gunboat, had decided that its various guns that it had couldn't deal enough damage and so was just going to slam into the side of the Parsh. They decided to refer to the old ways. <laughs> Pretty much ramming, bringing it back. But uh, Ramage was still trying to line up this shot and finally gave the order to pull off and to go full ahead just in time for the Kazan Maru to miss their tail. Uh, they're quoted as having missed by less than 50 yards. Yeah, that, uh, so, that's pretty close. It is pretty close. And it would have been even closer if it were not for the helmsman, Chet Stanton, who, hearing the crew yelling about an incoming ram... And knowing that it would take some time for the engines to actually respond, uh, he actually ordered the full ahead a good like few seconds before Ramage did. So it was like, "Hey, uh, <laughs> hey, office officer, hey, hey, boss, uh, let me take this one." <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I mean the balls on the dude because it is like technically disobeying the chain of command right he was like okay fuck this we're not getting rammed and just like slammed the throttle forward and so by the time that ramage was like okay yeah full ahead like the engines pretty much immediately responded because they'd actually been given the order a ways before that yeah but parsh Pulls off successfully and rounds on the Yoshino Maru. At this point, uh, Parsh lines herself up so that they're pretty much heading straight for each other. Uh, the morning dawn's beginning to creep in at this point, and continuing escort fire is lighting them up as much as possible. But Parsh dumps the three loaded forward tubes 
and two of them slam directly into the nose of the Yoshino. This time, it seems like they blew big enough holes that it doesn't move at all and grinds to a complete halt. Oh. Parsh is then able to swerve off and avoid the ship. Again, just in time, loading two rear-facing tubes and firing them into the now completely stationary side of the Yoshino. Both torps find their mark, and Yoshino erupts in another massive explosion. And in a, a much more somber moment, this was one of the troop transports, and of her 5,000 soldiers on board, she took 2,442 with her. Mm. But at the same time, it had to be done. So finally, her last sunken vessel claimed, Ramage orders a disengage from the brawl. Oh, man. <laughs> they, they put a full steam ahead, pull off from the escort vessels, and once safely, far enough away, they sink beneath the waves. All in all, from the time of the first torpedoes being fired to the last torpedoes, 34 minutes had passed. Dear Lord. <laughs> I could I could see the I could see the little uh green timer when people are speed running in the corner. Ramage is <laughs> 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 doing this. Oh man. But uh in those 34 minutes and I thought this was pretty fitting. Uh, they sunk a total of 34,300 tons of enemy vessels. So just north of 1,000 tons sunk per minute. Oh, dear. So it was so it was the two tankers... Um, and one two, of the troop transports. And one of the troop transports. Yeah. 34,300 tons in 34 minutes. With, a, not to mention, Steelhead claimed another 14,700. So, a pretty massively successful run, yeah. all things considered. And would they... How would they do the tonnage? Like, is... it Would it be the oil tanker while it was laden, or... Uh, I think so. It was effectively like assuming full, like assuming full sort of load and everything. How much did you sink? Which, granted, I I saw a little bit about this, but there was like a joint uh, thing between like the Axis powers and the Allies after the war that tried to like get the records correct. And the amended records post-war were significantly less yeah. in tonnage. But I, I also wonder how much, uh, how accurate those are. Because, you know, if you're the Axis and you just got your ass beat, you know, are you 
even in like small things like that you're probably going to be like oh yeah that wasn't that big a deal it was only this many tons yeah you know but anyway commander ramage would go on to actually get a uh this is going to be a bit of a shorter episode now, I'm realizing, but uh, Ramage would go on to receive the Medal of Honor for Ramage's Rampage, and in general was kind of a hero of the U.S. submarine force. Though granted, being the gentleman that he was, Ramage dedicated the medal to his crew, and made each of them their own certificates so that they could show that they were a part of the events known as Ramage's Rampage. That's awesome. Yeah, I I thought that was a a really nice gesture that he was effectively like, I mean, yeah, like I was commanding, but none of this would have happened if like the guys under me weren't busting their ass. Yeah, and, so. and just that specific example of his helmsman disobeying orders to get the fuck out of there. Right. Well, and I also thought that it was uh, it was kind of interesting because there's like a ton of footage of like him basically getting to meet FDR, and just like what a weird experience that must have been. You know, like, literally, you you go through 34 minutes of just, like, probably the highest adrenaline you will ever have in your entire life. Yeah. In those 34 minutes, rocket to, like, near the top of total tonnage for the entire war. And then come home and they're like, yeah, the president wants to meet you. <laughs> and you're also the only dude uh at this point who was awarded the medal of honor in the submarine force who's still alive yeah like there were only two people who got it before him and both of them it was awarded posthumously so to do all of that and to come out alive is something else but yeah yeah he he lived i think into his 90s past then so he he was around for quite some time post war that that seems like a thing right like people who go through absolutely insane shit somehow live to be super old i I don't know it seems like it should be the opposite but yeah i mean i guess like my grandpa didn't live to be super old but i don't know he he didn't have the healthiest lifestyle so yeah but uh, for those who don't know he he fought in world war ii lived to be 86 I believe so it's still gone to a very respectable age but uh, he was on the army side of things so we probably won't be talking about his exploits yeah wasn't 
isn't the other Medal of Honor for sub or no? I guess that wouldn't be submarine warfare because there was the one guy from U five hundred five that came aboard uh, the U boat and plugged the hole. Did he get the Medal it. of Honor for that? Yeah, he did. Um, oh shit! Okay, well, but I guess hmm. he wasn't strictly a a crew member of a sub. He was from a destroyer. Right, would have fallen under the navy. Yeah, but it, like literally all of the World War Two Medal of Honor reports are absolutely insane. Yeah, like oh, what was it the the one dude who basically like held a hill entirely by himself with a modified Browning machine gun, like just insane stuff like taking anti-personnel mines slapping them to arm them and then tossing them like frisbees (laughs) oh wow (laughs) like insane shit but no the the pacific in particular actually has like a lot of submarine warfare from the u.s's side which I thought it was kind of interesting because I really had not heard much about like submarine warfare outside of like the U-boats and like what a massive pain in the ass they were for England getting supplies. But mm-hmm. uh, no, I'd, I'd never really considered like how big of a role the U.S. submarines played in just like making japan's life a living hell (laughs) yeah and as we learned from the past episode i i guess the u.s put all their submarine eggs into the pacific basket because they really didn't have any on the atlantic coast right no and that was the that was the thing too there's a couple other events that i would like for us to discuss for our subathon and so i thought that i would actually kind of pitch them to you now and to our listeners so that you guys can have a bit of a vote on what the next topic's going to be uh one of which is the story of a u.s submarine that sank a single vessel and by sinking that vessel was on the top of the tonnage charts for all of World War II. Oh. (laughs) And also, the Churchill-class submarine that was involved in the Falklands conflict. So, jumping out of World War II for a bit and taking a trip to the 80s, and just sort of... It's an interesting one. To... Just give a bit of insight on it. It created international uproar in its use because it fired on a vessel outside of the military exclusion zone. Mm. But interesting stuff overall. Do you have feelings one way or the other, Jack? Uh, I want to know I don't. Know, I want to know what kind of ship this one U.S. sub sank. Like, what was the what was this thing that was so massive? 
that that, yeah. that, that, that interests me okay well listeners we have one vote for world war Two continues uh but let us know in the comments and you know as uh the youtube algorithm dictates like and subscribe if you're on that platform but otherwise you know follow the podcast keep tuned all, in all hail the algorithm all hail the algorithm and uh yeah we we look forward to talking to you guys more about subs during our subathon yeah well with that um do we want to talk about things outside of the realm of naval history? I think that's a great idea. All right. What have you got going on in your life, Jack? Uh, this past Sunday morning, um, the short version of this story is don't buy a house. Um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh I woke up Monday morning to the sound of gurgling water and like dripping and oh no coming from like around the house I'm like oh oh no and <laughs> I'm I'm running I'm running around the house in my underwear trying to figure out what's going on and um thankfully it was uh water draining out of my radiators and like <laughs> the yeah and um yeah, it was leaking out I onto thought. the yeah and leaking out onto the basement floor um so and it wasn't a whole ton of water so the the pump on the boiler has died and you know it could have it, it died at a pretty good time in april i won't be needing it much anymore but right. you can postpone getting a new one for a bit if you need to yeah but yeah uh the skinny of it is don't buy a house <laughs> <laughs> dude your house has had so many problems already i feel bad no oh, it's man. it no it really hasn't it's 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 been okay but i mean have you told the story on here of the of the the, the geyser. basement <laughs> <laughs> the geyser of toilet water in the yeah apparently like what it was it like a main pipe the the threading on like one of the things just gave the cap that was on like the Y joint in the main sewer stack, the pipe was so corroded that the threads were just gone and the cap just came off. So when there was sufficient poo pressure to dislodge <laughs> the cap, <laughs> it did so. <laughs> oh god i just remember you texting our group chat and being like hey guys sorry i can't make it tonight there is currently shit flooding into my basement <laughs> yeah i was like oh no no it it turned out okay yeah that's good well and i'm glad this one's kind of a 
Like, it's an issue for sure, but it's it's not an imminent one. Yeah. Well, so what's going on with you? Uh, I, I have a few things I could talk about, really. Um, I've been playing this game on Steam called Crab Champions. <laughs> it's like one dude made a third-person shooter, like, movement-based roguelike. And it's really good, but it's all of the assets and, like, everything is themed around just Crab Rave. <laughs> it's like marimba electronic music as the background tracks and you're just a crab with a gun shooting other crabs and monster things it's uh it's really good and it's like 10 bucks so pick it up if you're you're feeling like it but if you're uh, if you're a fan of earth defense force it kind of gives those vibes oh definitely now it's I, th- I think I showed Jack a little bit of me playing it a few days ago, but uh, the cluster launcher with the right perks just uh, blots out the sun. So, oh goodness. But so, uh, I have also gotten back into Magic the Gathering, which uh, Jack and I played quite a bit in college. And it's it's a fun game. The most recent set that came out, well, that comes out today, actually, or time of recording, excuse me, is uh, March of the Machine, and it has some pre-constructed decks that are really neat. If if you don't know magic, uh, then I guess you just don't care, but it's a good <laughs> game. <laughs> so... That's that's kind of been it for me. That and uh, my wife and I have been buying a shitload of plants. So, planting real, them up. Real plant hours. Real plant hours. We also accidentally bought uh, three Birds of Paradise, which, for those not in the know about plants, grow to be absolutely fucking massive. Because <laughs> we bought one pot, and it turned out to be three plants in one pot. And I was like, well, they're probably not going to do well if we keep all three of them in the same pot. So we separated them out, and they're already getting huge. <laughs> so That's fun. Don't know what I'm going to do with the two that I did not intend to buy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we'll, we'll see. Nice. Well. All right. I would like to thank... Uh, Colin Drown at Colin underscore Drawn for our lovely cover art and I would like to thank Joe Koziak for mixing and mastering the intro and outro music hell yeah brother thank you all for tuning in to the Salty Siren Naval History Podcast this has been your host David Bradbury and Jack McFarling And we will see you in the coming weeks for more Subathon. Oh, Johnny, Johnny, call and hear the ancient song of sailors long forgone and 
sailors still to be. A sweet and solemn tune, spoke gently by the tide. Oh, Johnny, Johnny, fall, join the song.